Please turn your attention to Genesis 44 and first part of 45 this morning. We're going to look at this long passage. For the sake of time, I printed the whole thing in your bulletin, but I'm just going to read Genesis 44, but the sermon will go into 45 as well. Here's Genesis 44. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys donkeys, and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say, my lord, Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it for me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, this boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. 
Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. And then just a few verses of, verse, of chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for this narrative in Genesis. Lord, we want to live into the story of indestructible hope. We pray that you would teach us how to do that. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, and most importantly, open our hearts that we might receive. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a broken world. Technology is great until it doesn't work. For example, our automatic door access at church stopped working recently, and then we had to call the installation company, and they had to walk us through how to recalibrate the doors all over again. We know this. I mean, when something breaks in our house, you know, we are used to. We'll call the plumber, we'll call the electrician, or we'll call a handyman. When our cars break, we take them into the mechanic. But how about when our relationships break? When our relationships break, what do you do? Where do you go? How do you repair broken relationships? Genesis 44 and 45 are about this topic. It's about the reconciliation of broken relationships, which is a major theme of the Joseph story that we've been going through together. There are two major threats to this family. One is brokenness and the other is starvation. At age 17, if you know this story, Joseph was sold off into slavery by his very own brothers, breaking this family into pieces. And so here's the plot tension, one of the plot tensions of the Joseph story. Is this family going to stay together? What's going to happen to them? It's the same plot tension of many modern stories. For example, the HBO series Succession is about the Roy family who owns a global media company. When the CEO and patriarch, Logan Roy, has a health crisis and is in danger of dying, it sets off a power struggle between the four children, the estranged oldest son, Connor, the power-hungry son, Kendall, the irreverent wild child son, Roman, and the politically savvy daughter, Shiv. And all the brokenness starts coming out. If you've seen the series, you know. All the jockeying for power, all the selfishness, all the backroom politics, and the plot tension is, will this media company and will this family hold it together or will they blow apart? And if truth be told, sometimes this is the main plot tension of our own family. Will our families stay together? Will our families endure the marriage tensions, the angry knockdown fights, the misunderstandings, the harsh and intemperate words, the I can't believe what you just did moments, the Thanksgiving dinner when our crazy uncle decides to come? Our families are full of broken and estranged relationships, and the plot tension so often is Will our family be able to hold it together? This is the plot tension of Joseph's family. 
And uh, the, the name of the series is Living Into a Story of Indestructible Hope. And so we have come to realize that God is at work in this family to put this broken family back together. And recon when reconciliation happens, as it does in our passage, a moment of great joy happens. I remember an experience I had in seminary. This is now years ago, but I remember it very well. I was driving back to campus, and I got back onto campus, and there was a three-way stop, and I must have had my mind on something else because I just did a rolling stop and kind of continued on. And in that process, I realized I cut off another car who was already there. And as I passed the car, my eyes met with the other driver, and I realized I knew the other driver. It was one of my professors. <laughs> and it was not just that moment of recognition. He was wagging his finger like this. <laughs> And I got back to my dorm room, and I said, what have I just done? And then my second thought was, how can I avoid talking to my professor about this? You know, I thought, like, you know, maybe he didn't recognize me. A lot of people think Asians look alike, so like, maybe he thought it was like another Asian on campus. I, I thought, maybe I can avoid him for the rest of my time at seminary, but I was there for another year, so like, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I thought, maybe I can just pretend it didn't happen. I was like, no, that's not really going to work. And so I, I waited for what felt like an eternity just for him to get home. I knew how far away he, uh, from campus he lives, and I waited uh, that long. And then I called him, and he picked up the phone, and I apologized. I mean, this is a, a, a conversation I was trying to, like, avoid with everything I had, and I, I apologized. I, I, I'm so sorry. And, you know, he was so gracious and forgiving. And then we chatted about some other things. And, you know, I hung up the phone, and I just felt this, this great burden of guilt lifted off my shoulders. It was just this great joy of reconciliation. This is a small little instance delivered this great joy of reconciliation. Genesis 44 and 45 show us the joy of reconciliation in a much bigger situation. God desires reconciliation for his people. I think that's what these chapters show us. God desires reconciliation for his people. The repair for broken relationships is reconciliation. And Genesis 44 and 45 show us two things I'd like to look with you about reconciliation. What it takes, number one, and number two, what it looks like. First, what it takes, and then secondly, what it looks like. So first, let's look at what it takes. This is chapter 44. This reconciliation that happens in Genesis 44 and 45 does not come out of the blue. It does not come out of nowhere. God, if, you, if you've been with us in this story, God has been working all along by his providence to bring this family together. I mean, without God's providence, this moment would have been impossible. Here's Joseph in Egypt. Here's his brothers in Canaan, completely different worlds. And if God didn't intervene in his providence, Joseph and his brothers would have had no opportunity to reconcile. But God sovereignly uses a famine to bring them together. And so they come for the first visit in Genesis 42, and Joseph tests his brothers to see if they have changed. We talked about that. In chapter 44, which I just read to you this morning, Joseph issues a second test to his brothers to see if they have changed. As the brothers are preparing to return to their father in Canaan, Joseph tells his steward, fill up their sacks with as much food as you can, put their silver back in their sacks, and put my silver cup in the youngest one's sack. And so he does that. The brothers are heading back on their trip, and then he instructs the, the, the steward to chase them down. And it's like that moment when you see the flashing lights of the police in your rearview mirror, 
And it's that feeling when you realize it's for you. And you pull over, you slow, you slow down, you pull over, and you roll down your window, and you wait for the officer to come to your window. The, the, the brothers pull over, and they wait for the steward to come to them. And he says to them, why have you repaid good with evil and stolen the silver cup of my master? And the brothers immediately defend their innocence. They say, well, we, we're back. We came back. We brought all the silver that, that were, was accidentally put in our sacks the first time. We brought it all back. So why would we take more silver and gold when we brought back to you what was mistakenly put in our sacks? And, and in fact, they're so sure of their innocence, they suggest a very severe punishment for the thief that is way beyond what, what a thief deserves. If, if one of us stole the cup, he should die, and, and we'll all become your slaves. Notice the steward reduces that sentence. He says, no, whoever says, has a silver cup will become a slave, and the rest of you can go free. And then the search begins of the sacks. Each brother lowers his sack and to the ground, and the steward begins uh, searching them. And, and you can imagine the mounting tension of this scene. There's no silver cup in this sack. There's no silver cup in this sack. There's no silver cup in this sack. Ten sacks are clean. No silver cup. Ten brothers are innocent. And then the steward comes, the sack of Benjamin, the youngest son. And he finds a silver cup, Joseph's silver cup, in Benjamin's sack. The brothers see this and all tear their clothes. It's their worst nightmare. Benjamin is the one brother they were trying to, connect, uh, to, to protect. And now he's going to become a slave. And so they all load up their donkeys again. They, go, they return to the city and they throw themselves down before Joseph. And Joseph says to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know a man like me can find out things by divination? And just a side note, I don't think Joseph, a loyal Hebrew, is actually practicing Egyptian divination. I think he's playing the role. He's playing the role and testing his brothers. It is, I might say, a very masterful test because what Joseph has done here is essentially recreated the same situation when his brothers sold him off into slavery years ago for a few pieces of silver. Now they face the choice of selling another beloved brother off into slavery, this time for a much bigger payoff for themselves, not just a few pieces of silver, but their very own freedom. And Joseph is, is watching. What are the brothers going to do? They have a chance to sell off another brother into slavery and save their own hide. And already in the narrative, I want to point out there are clues that they have begun to change. Notice what the brothers have said to the steward initially. If any of us have the silver cup, he will die, and we will all be slaves. Now, all the brothers are willing to suffer for one guilty brother. When the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack, notice they all tear their clothes in grief. When Joseph was sold off into slavery years ago, only Jacob the father tore his clothes in grief. The brothers didn't care. And now when Benjamin is, is poised to, to be taken into slavery, they all tear their clothes in grief. In verse 16, Judah says, how can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. They say that to Joseph. What guilt is he talking about? I don't think he's talking about the, uh, the guilt of stealing his silver cup because they didn't do that. And they just said, well, we're innocent of this. So what guilt is he talking about that God has uncovered? I think Judah is talking about the guilt of selling Joseph off into slavery years ago. They never forgot it. They're, they've been feeling guilty all these years and they realize they're guilty and they're morally accountable to God. For this, God is uncovering our guilt. 
when Joseph hears this, he says that only Benjamin has to become a slave. The rest can go free. Judah then steps forward and speaks for all the brothers. And he delivers the longest speech in Genesis in verses 18 to 34 in an effort to rescue his brother Benjamin. And I would suggest to you that in this speech, there's evidence that Judah has become a different man. There is a new compassion for his father. He says to Joseph, if Benjamin becomes a slave, my father's going to die of sorrow. This is the same brother who years ago told his father that Joseph had probably died and, and brought his, uh, his father's head down in grief, and he didn't care. He didn't care about that at all. He has a new compassion for his own father now. He has a new humility. He tells Joseph that Benjamin is the favored son, verses 20 and 27. Benjamin, my, this, this brother is the favored son that used to to rankle Judah. It used to make him angry, so angry that he didn't want to kill, kill Joseph. And now he accepts it. He accepts that Benjamin is the favored son. There is a new humility. And then most importantly, there is a new love and a new loyalty. In verse 33, Judah offers to sacrifice himself for Benjamin. He says to Joseph, please, my Lord, let me remain here as your slave in place of this boy and let him return with his brothers. See, it's evidence that Judah has become a changed man, this new compassion, this new humility, this new love. The one self-serving, greedy brother has now become a self-sacrificial, humble, compassionate brother. Gordon Wenham, a commentator on Genesis, says this, there is no more moving example of true contrition and repentance to be found in Scripture. That's high praise for this speech. No more moving example of true repentance is to be found in all of Scripture. Judah shows us, I think, what reconciliation takes. It takes true repentance. It's true repentance that breaks Joseph's heart open. My friends, there is no reconciliation without true repentance. So what is true repentance? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, says, What is repentance unto life? Here's the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after a new obedience. That's true repentance. See, true repentance is not just saying the words, I'm sorry. It's a grief and sorrow over sin. It's not just a sorrow over the consequences of sin. Sometimes that's all we're, we grieve about is, is I just don't like these consequences, but I'm not ashamed of what I did. It's not just sorrow over the consequences. It's not just sorrow that you got caught. Sometimes we're just sorry that we got caught, but if we didn't get, get caught, it wouldn't bother us. No, it's sorrow over the sin. And true repentance leads to a new obedience and real change. I once had a housemate who owned an old gray beater car. It was this, this huge sedan. It was built like a tank. It, like, it seated four people comfortably across the back seat. It was just this enormous vehicle. And I remember anytime we would go into the city, he would drive because he didn't care about his car. Like if it got dinged, he didn't care about it. And I remember one uh, season when, he, when I noticed that he began parking his car on the street overnight. Not, not in our driveway, but on the street. And so I was curious and I said, uh, to him, uh, why are you now parking your car in the street? And he said, well, 
uh, I'm sorry to say that the car no longer goes in reverse. And so I can't pull it into any place where I have to back out of. I always have to park it somewhere where I can just pull straight forward out of it. And it became clear that at that point, the greatest need of that car was not any cosmetic change. It, it didn't need a lot of cosmetic change. I mean, he could have repainted, he could have reupholstered, he could have you know, replaced all sorts of accessories, but that was not the greatest need. The greatest need was deep level change. I mean, that car really needed a new engine. And my friends, that is what repentance is. Repentance is this deep heart level change. It is the work of God in a heart by which he makes a heart new. It, it's a repentant heart that leads to new obedience, you see, new, new directions in life, new power. So often we just, when we, we need change, we just settle for cosmetic change. We just change the upholstery of our life. We just change the accessories of our life and we call that change, but that's not real change. We sometimes say we're sorry, but there's no real change. See, repentance is not cosmetic change. It is this deep heart level change evidenced by a genuine sorrow over sin and a new direction and a new obedience. When my friend replaced the engine in his car, that car had a new power. It had new capabilities. For one, it could now go in reverse. And my friends, the same is true with a heart of repentance. There are new powers, new directions, new ability to go in reverse. I, I'm so sorry. I need, to, I need to back up here and change directions. This is Judah's repentance. Judah's repentance is heart change. He owns up to his sin, doesn't blame anybody else. He owns up to it. He, he acknowledges the guilt of what he's done and, and what the brothers have done. He grieves over it, and it leads to a changed heart. There is a changed heart in this man such that he, he, his whole behavior, his words have changed, his attitudes have changed. My question for us this morning is, have we experienced true repentance? This heart-level change. The first thesis that Martin Luther posted on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. See, repentance is a way into the Christian life, but it's also the way of the Christian life. It is the way to experience deep heart-level heart change. A new life. A new power. A new direction. Here's what repentance is. It's acknowledging our sin. It's grieving over it. It's endeavoring after a new obedience. Here, repentance opens the door to reconciliation. See, when Joseph sees the, the, the true repentance in Judah, he can no longer control his emotions. The dam breaks. He cries out for all his attendants to leave the room, and then in private, he makes himself known to his brothers. He weeps so loudly that all the Egyptians hear. What does reconciliation take? It takes true repentance. So then secondly, what does it look like? What does rec reconciliation look like? When Joseph weeps before his brothers and reveals his identity, they are terrified in his presence. Why? Because they think this is a moment of revenge and retribution. Joseph now has all the power, and he is going to seek his revenge on us, and they're fearful. And Joseph assures them of his forgiveness. And now we go into chapter 45, and I read verses 4 through 8. Here's what Joseph says to his brothers in that moment. He says, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, 
the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. In other words, Joseph forgives his brothers. See, what, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is letting go of a debt. So like if someone owes you 20 bucks and you forgive that debt, what does that mean? You let go of that debt. You don't have to pay me back. I'm not going to ask you to pay me back. I'm going to let go of that. I'll absorb this loss. You don't have to pay me back. I'm not going to hold it over your head. I'm not going to seek revenge. When you, when you forgive someone, it's making a threefold promise. The promise to forgive includes, I'm not going to bring this offense up to you anymore. I'm not going to bring this offense up to other people. And I'm not going to even bring this offense up to myself. I'm not going to take this wrong that you've done and keep rehashing it in my mind, keep rehearsing it in my mind, drilling the bitterness deep, deeper and deeper. No, I'm not going to do that. I promise. I'm not even going to bring it up to myself. I'm, going to, I'm not going to let this wrong control me anymore. And of course, the question is, if that's what forgiveness is, how do you forgive someone when it's more than 20 bucks? How do you forgive someone when it is a great wrongdoing and injustice? When your own brothers sell you off into slavery, how do you forgive that? Joseph shows us. Joseph essentially sees this wrongdoing and injustice in the light of God's providence. I mean, notice what he says here. He says to his brothers, you sold me into slavery, but God sent me to Egypt. And what he's doing is he's looking at two sides of the same event, two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, you sold me into slavery. That's the human injustice side of this coin. But you know what? There's another side of the coin. In that same moment, God sent me to Egypt. And that's the divine providence side of the coin. And what Joseph is saying here is God's providence overrules and even works through human injustice. You sold me off into slavery, but God sent me to Egypt. In fact, Joseph says three times in this short little speech, God sent me ahead of you. Three times in verse 5, verse 7, and verse 8, God sent me ahead, God sent me ahead, God sent me to Egypt. What is Joseph doing? He's focusing consciously more on God's providence and his grace more than his brother's sin. God's providence for Joseph is giving him a new lens to interpret the narrative of his life. See, consider this for a moment. If, if there's no God, if, if there, without God, the narrative of, of Joseph's life is not great. My, my brothers wronged me. They, they sold me off into slavery. They, they ruined my life. I, I lost years off my life. That's it. Period. End of story. I mean, that's enough to make a person a skeptic, a cynic, maybe even a nihilist. I mean, that's why many people, I think, are, are cynics and, and skeptics because, you know, my life uh, has been terrible. It's suffering. It's hardship. And that makes you cynical and skeptical. In light of all the suffering that Joseph went through, he doesn't become a cynic. He doesn't become a skeptic. Why not? It's because he's learned to look at his life through the lens of God's providence. Which tells him there is a purpose to my life. 
there is a plan to my life that no wrong or injustice can ultimately disrupt or deter. God sent me here. God sent me here. That's the narrative of his story. And then he says, God made me Lord of all Egypt. You see, because of the wealth that God brought him, it makes this debt, his brothers owe him very small because of this enormous wealth that God has given Joseph. He's able to forgive a small debt. As a corollary, when we realize how spiritually wealthy God has made us, those are the resources that enable us to forgive others. It's God's providence that enables Joseph to forgive his brothers. So what happens, verse 12, Joseph affirms his identity to his brothers again. Let me read the last part of our passage in chapter 45. Joseph says you to his brothers, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt, and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with them. It's a moving scene of the joy of reconciliation. What does it take? It takes true repentance. What does it look like? It looks like forgiveness and embrace and joy and reunion. C.S. Lewis, in, in the uh, last battle, the last uh, book of the Narnia series, pictures the reunion that takes place in Aslan's country at the end of the story. When character after character from the early books reappear for this great, thrilling, joyful reunion, there's Reepy Cheep, the valiant mouse. There's Puddleglum, Rillian, Prince Caspian, Trumpkin the dwarf, Bree the talking horse, Mr. Tumnus the fawn from the first book. And there's one scene at the reunion where Jill and Lucy encounter Puzzle, a talking donkey, who when they last saw him was being used as a pawn of the enemy. Here's the moment. Look, said Jill suddenly. Someone was coming rather timidly to meet them. A graceful creature on four feet, all silvery gray. And they stared at him for a whole ten seconds before five or six voices said all at once, why, it's old Puzzle. They'd never seen him by daylight with his lion skin off, and it made an extraordinary difference. He was himself now, a beautiful donkey with such a soft gray coat and such a gentle, honest face that if you had seen him, you would have done just what Jill and Lucy did, rushed forward and put your arms around his neck and kissed his nose and stroked his ears. Friends, I think that's a picture of the great reunion that will take place when Jesus returns. The great joy of heaven will be seeing God face to face, but a second great joy will be the reunion of God's people. It will be the reunion to end all reunions because we will be a people healed and made new with relationships healed and made new. No more clicks. No more people left out. No more hurt feelings. No more misunderstanding and jealousy. All will be forgiven. And there will be tears of joy, laughter, and embrace. I think jo Joseph and his brothers here get a foretaste of that great reconciliation reunion that will happen when Jesus returns. And I think they show us that we can experience the joy of reconciliation in this life 
through repentance and forgiveness. In 1984, Jennifer Thompson was a college student with a promising future when one night someone broke into her apartment, put a knife to her throat, and raped her. During the ordeal, she was determined to remember her attacker, so if she survived, she could pick her, out her attacker and put him into prison. Several days later, she had that chance. She identified her attacker from a police lineup, and based on her testimony at the trial, Ronald Cotton was sentenced to prison for life. Fast forward to 1995, 11 years later. Jennifer Thompson was asked to provide a blood sample so DNA tests could be run on evidence from the case which had been reopened because there were questions. Jennifer agreed, thinking that the DNA test would only confirm the original judgment, but the unthinkable happened. The DNA test came back and proved that Ronald Cotton had not raped her. It was a man named Bobby Poole. Jennifer Thompson had thrown him unjustly into prison for 11 years. She was racked with guilt. She said, how do I give someone back 11 years of their life? For two years, she struggled with guilt over what she had done. And then one day she stopped crying and knew exactly what she had to do. She had to find and face Ronald Cotton. She arranged to meet him at a church in the same town where she had been raped. She prayed for strength and she faced Ronald Cotton and said these words, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. If I spent every day for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to, how, to what I feel. And Ronald Cotton was calm and quiet and finally he spoke. I'm not mad at you, he said softly. I've never been mad at you. I just want you to have a good life which is incredible. How is Ronald Cotton able to say this to the woman who had wrongfully accused him and stole 11 years from his life? Ronald Cotton had become a Christian in prison. He met a savior in Jesus Christ who says, come to me all who are weary and heavily burdened and I will give you rest. He found in Jesus Christ someone who carried the burdens of his sin to the cross and he experienced the mercy of God in such a way that he was able to extend that same mercy to Jennifer Thompson. After Ronald Cotton forgave Jennifer Thompson that day in the church, they sat for two hours while their families paced nervously outside as to what was going to happen. She asked about prison. He asked about how she could be so sure at the trial. They talked about the pitfalls of memory, the power of faith, the hard journey that had brought them together. The amazing end of this story is that Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton became friends. Ronald calls Jennifer to make sure she's doing okay and teaches her about forgiveness, healing, and faith. And Jennifer has helped Robert through the years, lobbying to change laws so they could receive a better settlement. Two enemies have become friends. God desires reconciliation for his people, which we can experience in part in this life, and in full when Jesus returns. A more fundamental reconciliation that we all need is reconciliation with God. Because we've all sinned against God and broken our relationship with him just as the brothers did with Joseph. We are those brothers before God. How, is, how are we reconciled to God? I would suggest to you that it is the same way that Joseph's brothers are reconciled to Joseph. We have an older brother 
who's better than Judah. You see, just as Judah offered to pay a penalty for a crime he did not commit to set his brothers free, we have a brother in Jesus Christ who did not just offer to pay the penalty, he paid the penalty for sins he did not commit, that we might go free. Just as Judah, out of love for Benjamin, offered himself as a substitute, taking the place of Benjamin to set him free, so our older brother Jesus Christ, out of love for us, offered himself up as our substitute, taking our place on the cross so that we could be forgiven and restored and reconciled to a relationship with God. And so it is. When we recognize that Jesus is our older brother, better than Judah, who loves us so much that he took our place and took the punishment that we deserve in our place for us so that we could be set free and reconciled to God, we have a motivation and resource for true repentance and forgiveness that leads to reconciliation with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we relate to this narrative because our relationships are broken. Our families are broken. Lord, thank you in Jesus Christ for providing us the means to fix broken relationships, repentance, and forgiveness, and reconciliation. Lord, would you help us to practice and experience these things? For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.